Today's show is thanks to IndieFlix.com, the one place that you can go to watch award-winning independent movies, shorts, documentaries, and web series from around the world. If you want a one-year subscription for free, subscribe to EntrepreneurAbroad.com today. Remember, IndieFlix, bringing the film festival home to you. Welcome to episode 15. This is an interview with the largest online real estate marketplace in Brazil called Viva Real and the CEO and co-founder, Brian Reckworth. Welcome back to Start Something Matters. My name is Daniel Philbin. This is a podcast rally brought to you by entrepreneurabroad.com. Got a great conversation with a guy today who's built an amazing business in Brazil. Over 400 staff, 15 offices, more than $70 million raised in venture funds. And there's some funny stories behind that, so you really need to listen in. He's also going to be talking to you about focus, how you need to focus, what you need to focus on, and specifically an awesome strategy that he uses in business that you should definitely start implementing if you're not already doing so. So stick around and tune in. Have you ever felt that feeling in your gut where you just feel sick? You know, it's sick in your stomach feeling like it's not going to go away. Well, for Brian, that feeling manifested when he realized that he only had $87 left in his bank account with 20 staff on the payroll and he was going away on his first vacation to spend with his young family. You see, people want to talk to you about the highlights of entrepreneurship, of business, but when your head's in a toilet bowl and you can't stop throwing up because you know there's a chance that this business might fail, that's often the real reality. Building a billion dollar business is one thing, but the journey of getting there is a totally different one. If you get a couple of seconds, do me a favor, leave a five-star review. Let's get into the conversation. Brian, welcome to Start So That Matters. Great to have you on the show. Thanks a pleasure. Now, the audience says you've built the largest online marketplace for real estate in Brazil, but they don't know the story behind that. Before you are in Brazil, before you built this business, tell me that story. Do you believe in that stuff? I don't know. <laughs> like I, you know, it's, I don't 100% not believe in it. There's been a lot of like factors and things that have come in my way that look kind of insurmountable in a lot of ways or don't look probable that I can overcome them. And I think just determination can 
addiction just override a lot of things that you know, they really think isn't possible. And it's really just about like kind of conditioning your mind to believe that you can do certain things. And, and that's something that I, I just wholeheartedly believe in. That's why I really don't you know, count people out a lot of times. I remember times when people didn't believe in me in, in certain moments. And those are just like the ultimate motivation uh, to, to be able to kind of prove people wrong. You don't mind being the underdog? No, no, not at all. I, I, I revel in the being the underdog. Determination and conviction. Who did you get that from, your mum or your dad? It's a good question. I think definitely a bit of both. But my mom is also highly determined. I mean, I think my dad is probably, he's a dreamer, for sure. I graduated uh, from college, and I decided that I would work for him. Being the fact that, you know, it was a family company, he was very supportive on pursuing my own dreams rather than his dreams. And that's something that I'll, I'll hopefully pass on to my children. It's easy to kind of push them in a direction because it's something that you've done when, you know, finding your own way is, is an important part of, of life. Right before I guess I started working for my dad in the summertime, I had actually taken Portuguese classes, which ironically came very convenient for the fact that I started a business in Brazil. There was this girl that I'd, I kind of liked in my Portuguese classes. I remember we'd kind of hung out a bit. We'd studied together. One of the classes that I did really well in. And then I asked her out on a date uh, at the end of the year. Kind of got the courage up and I, you know, I went for it. I kind of realized very early on that she just wasn't really into me. And so I took her to this really cool place that had this great apple pie. And I remember thinking to myself, this is just a disaster. And so I'm like, I'm going to make the best out of this situation. So what I did was I asked who the owner of the restaurant was. They had this famous apple pie in San Diego. And then I started just quizzing them on where they got their apples. Because I grew up in a small town in Sebastopol, and there was an apple farm right next to me. And they had Gravenstein apples, which are, if you don't know, are the best apples for making apple pie. Kind of jet off on the date. I was her ride back, but I'm talking to the owner for like half an hour. They didn't use Gravenstein apples, but he really liked the idea. And so I said, hey, I, I can help you out. I've got a contact. So that's when Rex Apples was born. Uh, Rex is my nickname. My friends call me when I was growing up, Reckworth Rex. I ended up going to my neighbor and I asked him, hey, how much does it cost to, you know, to get some apples down to San Diego? And I ended up being a wholesaler selling two tons of apples to this outfit in San Diego. The lesson there is I was always on the, the lookout, even in really crappy situations where, you know, I had this, this girl who just kind of like totally denied me on a date. I converted that into a really nice little micro business that I had during the summer, which contributed to my savings. <laughs> How much did you make out of that little venture, by the way? I made about five grand, I think. That was a pretty good date for you, right? You would have lost money normally. It was a very good date. I went down to Latin America and I reconnected with the girl that I had been dating in college that had gone back to Colombia. And I ended up Living in Colombia for seven years, you know, I got married to the girl that I dated before that. So definitely the right move. We're still married today and we have two kids. So, uh, well, one on the way. Congratulations. Not everyone is good at languages. You said you're good at them. How did you know to pick Spanish and Portuguese? My undergrad, I realized that I could get credit through these trips in other countries where I would take classes, you know, so I'm like, this is a, a kind of a no brainer. Got my way into the study abroad department. And there was a woman named Ginny Foster who was just really a sweet lady at San Diego State, made me the ambassador for studying abroad. When I went to Costa Rica, I think one of the second or third times, and got some college credit there. And then I realized that, that I could get a minor in Portuguese because you know in the US you have to declare a major and a minor. So I brought to the Spanish-Portuguese department the idea of setting up a study abroad program in Portugal, offered myself as a candidate to like test this, found Spanish language school, negotiated a deal. You know, they gave me college credit and got to spend the summer in Portugal, which was a lot of fun. If I ever went back and wanted to get involved in education, I would really push for getting students in other countries because 
you know, frankly, I was a really poor student and I couldn't find the motivation in the kind of the traditional university setup. Living in Latin America, there's this kind of like obsession with how things should work. You study at this place, you do this, you get this job. And, you know, I think that I'm an example of that there's no real like straight shot or direct path to a career. You can kind of experiment and find out what your passion is and then then pursue it. Staying at the dorms, uh, you know, San Diego State University, there was these very, very ugly linoleum floors. Got a friend of mine. We went over to Sid's Carpet Barn and they had this gigantic stock of remnant carpets uh, that were left over from these big jobs. And I asked them to give me on consignment all of their inventory that they left over because it was just sitting in a warehouse. Senior year, all the freshmen were coming in and prey on the uh, the parents as they dropped their kids off to school uh, for the first time, you know, leaving home. And they just wanted the best for their kids. And so we would just wait for them. And we helped out Sid's Carpet Vine by kind of liquidating their, their stock. We moved tons of carpet over that time period. One particular friend of mine who is also now the CEO of a, a tech startup in San Francisco, we basically just did this throughout college. And in fact, I met my wife through another business we had called GoTime. But basically we organized these international events with all the people that came to San Diego. It didn't really work, but one night we were doing some market research at a place, and that's the night that I, that I actually met my wife. She was with two of her Colombian friends. She's from Colombia. We started dating, and then you know, I ended up visiting her in Colombia, which kind of connecting the dots before and, and moving to Colombia. Just the thrill of kind of starting something, making it go has always been a huge motivator for me. All right, let's head to a break. When we come back, Brian's going to tell you exactly how he built multiple businesses in a different country. Welcome back to Stars of the Matters. My name is Daniel Philbin. This is a podcast proudly brought to you by entrepreneurabroad.com. You're listening to Brian Reckworth, the co-founder of the largest real estate marketplace in Brazil called Viva Real. Let's get back to the conversation. You've done this so many times before, so was there just no fear of failing? Absolutely no fear. Never really worried about it, ever. Maybe I just don't have very good consequential thinking. I mean, for me, I just never saw much downside because I always considered a learning experience. Of course, you know, when you get farther along and other businesses that I started later, they get a little harder and you get more invested in it and there's more at stake. There's always some self-doubt that gnaws at you, but that's something you can be a very, very strong motivator if you can turn it into something that's positive and get comfortable with the doubt, recognize it's there and then just develop a plan to overcome it. How do you get comfortable with doubt? You just think about the fact that it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things and that whatever happens can be fine. When I started my first business in Colombia after I had bought a one-way ticket to Bogota and set up shop there, I didn't really have a backup plan. It was kind of like burn the ships. I always knew that I was capable of doing something. I just hated the idea of going back and getting a regular job. Like I think the fear of coming back with my tail between my legs and like accepting defeat was a strong enough motivator for me to just keep pushing through really difficult moments. My parents were also really supportive. I don't know if behind closed doors they were like, this could go wrong. There was obviously moments of like, what am I gonna do here? I mean, when I got to Colombia, I went to job interviews and it was very clear that no one would hire me for anything. I lived in a $10 motel for the first two weeks, visiting my girlfriend, now my wife, from a very kind of pretty well-to-do family. And I remember one of the first nights we went out at like some really nice kind of plays. I was a very kind of an uncomfortable and unfamiliar feeling, kind of high society, Columbia. I wouldn't say that I was immediately accepted. <laughs> the first company I started, it was a company called English Without Borders. It was an English school. It was the only thing I could reputably 
talk about as native English speaker. And I ended up creating this kind of curriculum. At the time, I had this one old suit. It didn't fit perfectly because I bought it at the Salvation Army for $7. Headed straight down to kind of the, the main avenue where all the companies were. In Colombia, there's a lot of security. And, you know, I did pull the gringo card. I, I'm a little ashamed to admit. I walked in, caused a little bit of commotion, got past security, got in the elevator, finally got up to, I think it was the 13th floor where all the top businesses are. And I ended up pitching stock brokerage. And I somehow got to the right person, allowed me to have a second meeting, pitched a bunch of students. And that was my first little contract that I got. Ended up realizing quickly that I wasn't a great teacher. So I hired my first teacher. He ended up teaching 90% of the classes. That actually became my income for the first year. It was kind of the initial seed capital for me to start my next business. Uh, several months after I'd been there and I started teaching, I'd overstayed my visa. There was a guy sitting across from me and I saw his German passport. I had a, an executive at the stock brokers that I, where I was teaching that wanted to learn German. So I struck up a conversation with Thomas, who turned out to be my co-founder. We had coffee together the next day, both realized we wanted to start a business and he had a kind of a stronger technology product background and I had kind of a sales and marketing background. That was kind of the initial seeds that we planted for a company that we started called Coal Connect, uh, where we would build websites for businesses in Colombia. What I believe, and I guess some conclusions here and a little bit of reflections is that it's just all about action. I think inaction is your worst enemy. You're constantly optimizing for learning. I think that you will eventually figure out a lot of things as long as you're kind of consistently moving. How important has it been, if you look back at your life, the moments where you've been able to strike up a conversation? It's been a very important piece because just yesterday I was at the park and I was with my kid. I struck up a conversation with a woman. She was, you know, in her probably in her 60s and her son, you know, he's a, a mobile app developer. I, and I just said, hey, send in your resume. We're hiring. Part of it is serendipity and part of it is just opening your, your hand, letting things happen. The first kind of website we did, we walked around this place. It's like almost a shopping mall for computers. We would sell e-commerce websites, which was very early in 2005. I remember the first website that I sold, I think I collected 500 bucks first payment. And then I came back two weeks later after we finished it to present it to the client and he was out of business and he'd closed. I think the first lesson there is like, choose your market carefully. When I think about business plans, I think, you know, as soon as you write your business plan and you print it, it's old. One of the things that I was always very, very aware of is creating cash flow. That's something that, you know, living in Colombia, don't have the, the access to capital like you do in, you know, maybe in Australia or in the US or in Europe. You learn how to prioritize and how to be very adaptive quickly because if you don't, you die. My co-founder Thomas and I, we like took this little trip, like kind of a getaway. We were like, all right, we have to rethink everything we're doing. I had been in the internet cafe and I had come across this case study from Harvard, from Mercado Libre, which today is the largest internet business in Latin America. It's a publicly traded company, basically the eBay of Latin America. I remember like reading this case study and I was like, this is, this is powerful. Like we should build the Mercado Libre of real estate. That was kind of the inspiration there. Continue to support our customers while we took the cash from that business and started investing and building a marketplace business. At the time, my best friend in college, my partner in crime carpet business, he had just sold his business to Ticketmaster, made millions of dollars. He flew down to Colombia. You know, he's 27 years old. He just wanted to do his next thing. He was really excited. He had all his money. I, I pitched him. I'm like, hey, we're going to transition to this marketplace business. And, you know, I'd love for you to invest. We're going to open up an office in Brazil. We're going to go after Mexico. We're going to go after all these countries. Originally, I was going to do all of Latin America. We met in our little conference room. He wrote a very, like, large check. It was $250,000, you know, a rational amount of money for him to invest in me at the time. And he kind of financed the transition into this new model. He ended up writing other checks 
because it, it costs a lot more money than we anticipated. I ended up selling my apartment in Colombia, which was a real tough negotiation with my wife. Dumped all my money into this transition. You know, I'm, I'm all in for 200, which was about 90% of the value of my apartment. Going back to 2008, 2009, when I transitioned this business, I, I contacted this guy named Simon Baker, you know, was the CEO of REA Group in Australia, which is today it's a $6 billion market cap uh, real estate marketplace, same business that we've built. And so that was right around the same time I was planning to make the transition. So I sent him a message on Facebook just randomly. Hey, Simon, you don't know me. I've been reading your blog and I saw that you left REA. I'd love to talk to you about, you know, what I'm trying to do in Latin America. He responded to me and he's like, I'll be in, you know, I'll be in San Francisco at this conference if you want to meet up for coffee. And so I flew up from Colombia, met up with him, memorized a bunch of like data statistics about internet penetration in Latin America, you know, reading Wikipedia before, beforehand. I wasn't exactly an expert on Mexico or any other country. So I pitched him the idea and he gave some feedback and he's like, all right, well, I'm interested if you're looking to raise money. And so James and I, my friend that financing the company at that point, we got together, worked on a business plan. Later, we, we pitched him again. The whole time he was taking, you know, copious notes. You know, at the time we had this like really weak website, had 20,000 visitors, it was almost nothing. He's like, what are you looking to raise? How much money? What's the valuation? I kind of like, you know, took a gulp and I'm like, yeah, we're looking to raise a million dollars at a six million pre-money valuation. And he looked at me, he looked at his notebook, looked back at me, slammed his notebook shut and said, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you know, he kind of stormed out of there. You know, I was a super rookie at this time, never raised any money besides family and friends. He kind of just like totally just destroyed my dream. Well, you got it? Come on, you must have been disappointed. I called him that afternoon. I'm like, hey, how about five million? <laughs> <laughs> what did he hang up on you? Extremely rookie move. For a while, he didn't really return my calls. I would keep him updated, you know, constantly over the next following two years. James had put more money in, I'd put more money in, and we'd kind of kept it going until 2011. We'd created some cash flow from the, the operation. I reconnected with Diego, who we'd studied together in Argentina, and several years had passed. You know, I get a message from him on LinkedIn talking about that we're going to build a business in Brazil. For several months, he just kind of no strings attached just did a bunch of like kind of research for us. And so I, I looked at my other co-founder after a couple months and I'm like, Hey, Thomas, you know, we should definitely bring Diego on. This guy's awesome. He's doing an incredible job and he really has the kind of the entrepreneurial spirit, brought him on board, officially made him a partner, flew him up to Bogota where we were currently, you know, operating and living. And I remember one meeting that we had that was super critical and it was kind of something that became really part of our DNA. And I think is something absolutely fundamental for anyone building a business went to the whiteboard and we made a list of 10 things that we needed to do in order to be be successful we did the t same 10 things for today in order of importance point in time 2009 these are 10 things we need to do we rank them based on importance for that time and then we did 10 things need to be important in the long term for the business to be successful and we kind of changed the order of it listings was you know the number one thing we needed more properties on our website being a marketplace we focused on seo traffic third one was uh, just signing up more customers so we were just absolutely kind of laser beam focused all the other things that we listed we just basically put an x through all of them and said okay we're not even going to think about these other things and we're going to just obsessively focus on bringing content to the website. Many times as an entrepreneur, the hardest thing is focus. You're always kind of chasing the bright and shiny lights of different ideas. I said the word focus probably 10,000 times over the first couple of years of the business. And deciding what not to do is even more important than deciding what to do. So we decided to not do these seven other things and we 
literally just crossed them off the list and said, we're not even going to think about these things. I don't even want to talk about these. The roadmap for execution became really clear. The results took off. The lesson is not having money is an amazing tool for focusing what you need to do. Because when you don't have money, either you do the most impactful thing or you die. Who told you to do this? Did you just have a, a brain click one day and said, you know what, we, we got to write this stuff down and focus on what's important? Or did you read something? Did you watch something? What brought you to the point where you actually thought you needed to get focused? I have to give a lot of credit to this guy, Simon Baker, uh, because he was kind of a hard ass about stuff. And most of the things he told us were pretty spot on. I had dinner with him in 2011 in San Francisco after he'd invested finally. June, July 2011, ended up closing around led by a guy named Greg Waldorf, who ultimately kind of become my mentor. He used to be the, the CEO of eHarmony, and he was an early investor in one of the leading real estate marketplaces in the US. When we were at dinner, I remember one of the things he said was very Australian. Uh, I didn't really know the phrase. He said, head down, bum up whatever that means, focus on listings. He said, in you know two or three years, you'll if you make that your, your just ultimate focus and obsession, you'll wake up and be sitting on a gold mine. I remember exactly him saying that. And so we had kind of like been on that like mode for a while. It really just cued in more reason to stay focused on that. You know, now we're at a different point where we have the largest inventory. So there's other things that are, that are important. That's not the number one metric that we would look at today. I think that was a good guidance for me. And in the Silicon Valley, there's a, a large debate about, is it good to raise a ton of money? Is it good to bootstrap? And I'm kind of in the camp with bootstrapping. Now that I have more experience, been able to kind of scale a bit the business, I feel like I would know what to do with the money more now. When you're starting out, it would have been a bad move for me to just raise a bunch of money early in the business because we didn't have... 100% clarity and we didn't have the experience to be a good steward of that cash. All right, Sedgwick, break when we come back, Brian's gonna be talking to you about how he's overcome some of his personal struggles, along with some tips and strategies to help you build your business. Welcome back to Star Center Matters. My name is Daniel Philbin. This is a podcast for any brought to you by entrepreneurabroad.com. You're listening to Brian Reckworth, the co-founder of VivaRoyale.com, the largest real estate marketplace in Brazil. Brian is also the feature of our EA's second edition. So head over to entrepreneurabroad.com to check that out. It's free. In that edition, Brian will be talking to you about the five questions that you need to ask before you build your startup, additional advice on raising capital, as well as how to build a winning team why you need to focus on impact along with much more. So get your copy today. Let's get back to the conversation. How important was it to get Simon on board? Finally coming on in early 2011, late 2010, the guy originally told you pretty much where to go. How did you feel when he finally signed the dotted line and sent you a check? Well, he'll probably listen to this somehow. He was a tough negotiator, tough guy to deal with. I was just like dogged persistence. I probably got to the point of harassing him, be sending him updates all the time. I'd be talking to him on Skype. Finally, I just decided to hire him as a consultant, negotiated a deal for him to come down to Brazil. He charged me, I think it was like $6,000, which was just an insane amount of money for me at the time. One week before he arrived, and I looked at my co-founder, Diego, and I said, Diego, how the hell are we going to pay him right now? We have hardly any money. I had the idea of organizing an event five days before his arrival. Sent a mass email out to all of the real estate companies in Brazil, Sao Paulo, that we, you know, that we had in our database. And we positioned Simon Baker as the you know, premier expert on real estate marketing you know, on the internet worldwide. And we charged for the event. Surprise, we had 
100 people sign up, paid, and we were able to actually bring on several sponsors for the event. Simon drops into Sao Paulo first time. I'm like, hey, Simon, you know, I decided to organize this event. He, he put together some slides because he had done some presentations before. We ended up getting this room full of real estate brokers, breaking even on the event. We paid his stay. Then we turned a bunch of these people into customers the weeks following. So I think after that, he was like, Beep. you guys are really scrappy. I should get involved here. And so that's when he wrote his first check. Yeah, that's unbelievable. All right. Yeah, it was, it was a really good move. And that led additional credibility to the company. At the consulting session with him, the first one, I, I think I still have some video footage of this. I was just like asking him questions and then like recording him. During that session, he gave us a lot of good advice and it really solidified. I really wanted to bring him on as an investor. So we ended up closing a small little seed round with him. You know, I'd raised a couple hundred thousand. A couple months later, clear that we would need a lot of cash. Our competitors are very well funded, had been in the market for 10 years. One of them, the largest media company in Latin America owns it. The other one had investment from very, very large New York based hedge fund, you know, private investor. We're not on anyone's radar at all. And there's very, little belief that we're even going to survive. Several months later, I reached out to this guy, you know, Greg Waldorf, who I'd mentioned earlier, and Greg had joined Excel Partners as the CEO in residence. I saw the news, I think it was on TechCrunch or somewhere, and I went and contacted the associate that had reached out to me, expressing interest in the company, and I asked him if he could make an intro to Greg Waldorf. He made the intro, and I flew up to the Bay Area. We had several meetings, and then Greg agreed to lead our angel investment at that point, and Simon also participated in that investment as well. We ended up raising a little over a million dollars. What's the game plan? What are you going to do with it? You mentioned that listing was the main goal. Had it changed at this stage? We were super focused on listings. We started hiring some more people, started getting more paying customers, having some real traction in Sao Paulo, and it became very clear there was an opportunity. At that point, I ended up deciding to raise more institutional cash. So we went and raised from two local funds, both in, from Latin America. We raised an additional three and a half million dollars end of 2011. We raised that cash specifically focused on expanding nationally. We rolled out some additional offices, started signing up customers outside of the main city where we were in. Now we're in kind of a new era of focus where we have a lot of capital. We ended up raising a total of a little over $70 million from investors. The angel round with Greg and Simon, we did a series A with two local investors, Monashis and Kazek. And then we did a, a series B and a C with several hedge funds, as well as VCs that do growth capital, Valiant, Dragoneer. The last couple of years has been pretty crazy for you. You're this guy from America who's gone to Brazil. I mean, you've now raised 70 mil. Come on, is it, is it really that easy? Or have you just gotten lucky? No, it's not easy at all. It's called an extreme desire and focus, a bit of luck, and a shitload Beep. of hard work. There's been a few moments where it kind of like almost just makes sense to hang your hat up, you know? 2011, before we kind of closed that angel round, June or July, and I was getting ready to go on my first vacation, if you will, with my family. I had about 20 people on payroll, and I remember looking at my bank account, thinking to myself, okay, we're, we're weeks away from this ending. I had $87 in the bank. Literally several months of no salary. It's kind of like one of those moments where, is this it? I kind of never really seriously thought that, but part of me knew that there was a very high probability that this thing could just not keep going and something needed to happen. Both my dad and my best friend were like, hey, you know, this is getting a little crazy here. I don't have the kind of money to be putting in five, 10 grand every month. They were pretty deep in it. Wrote another check and then finally 
that was when the angel round closed, gave us a lot of breathing room and enabled us to start growing the revenue. How did you feel when you had 87 bucks? You knew there was a possibility that it wasn't going to work. It manifested itself through actually a physical feeling where I actually was physically sick from the, the stress of that. I used to joke around that I developed something called round sickness. <laughs> when I raised money from investors, raising money became, I wouldn't call it enjoyable, but it became a lot more predictable because the business became much more predictable. You know what I want to know? I want to know why these big competitors didn't just squash you like a fly. Two huge players in the market, they didn't see you coming. You just squeaked your way in the back door. How is it that you didn't get squashed? It's a constant reminder to never underestimate people in general. It's humbling knowing that you can do a lot of things that people don't expect. The lesson for me is when I see the next company trying to come up, I never get in a position where I think we're too good for anything. It's a fine line to balance because you have to be crazy enough to tell yourself how good you are without drinking all of your own Kool-Aid so that you become arrogant and think that you're indestructible. Tell me about how you've changed and how your identity's changed and how you've re had to reinvent yourself in order to be a leader. Constantly just be being a willing student. I think that's a core principle that equates to just personal growth when you have that kind of approach and attitude. And so that's something that I've always tried to kind of adopt. In terms of like my identity, like anyone, you know, you go through moments of feeling inadequate, the, the vulnerability of like feeling like, well, am I smart enough to do this? Am I capable enough to do this? You have to let it fall on deaf ears and you have to be able to convince yourself and believe in yourself. And once you kind of have that conviction, any kind of obstacle you face, it literally just becomes an obstacle and it's not a roadblock where there's no route to get around it. It's just a mountain to climb. Is there ever a time when you didn't consider yourself an entrepreneur? I worked for six months as a as a telemarketer when I was 19, I dropped out of school. Even during that time, I remember thinking to myself, like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to start a company at some point. And, and I just remember learning all the cool things that I liked about the company and just, like, tucking them away in my mind. What changed, though, for you to come to think of yourself as an entrepreneur? What changes when you – every small little success you have is just – it's a boost of confidence and it's affirmation that – you can do it. You need to celebrate your wins. The tiniest victory that you, you, know, you can have. Did you need to overcome anything to become an entrepreneur? I think the biggest thing is fear. People just basically don't do things because they're worried about what could be. Never really gave a shit. You just can never like, lose that hope. The number of businesses that I created for Viveral is, is a large number. They're, they're basically just battle scars for you to take the learnings that you experience and then just apply them to your next thing. I want people to understand that you're a normal guy, right? Talk me through your day. I got up at seven, had some breakfast, got an Uber cab, dropped my son off at daycare. He was two, headed to the office, kind of looked at my day, sent a few emails, and then popped into a meeting at 9.30. Brazilian government requires that you have interns so they can have some work experience. So I had a, a little fireside chat with these, you know, 17, 18 year olds. You know, I told them the story, a little bit of the story of Viva Rao, So it was a good lead up to our chat right now. I ask them, you know, what they do on the internet, which apps they like, just out of curiosity so I can be thinking about where trends are going and what the, the kids are using today. Gave them a little kind of motivational, you know, hey, you can make an impact here. We jumped on a call the rest of my day, a one-on-one -on -one with you know, some of my team. I've got a meeting with one of our investors that's helping me develop a project. I've got a two-hour session with our product and engineering team where we're 
really digging deep into kind of the culture of the company, rethinking and redefining what we believe in as an engineering culture with the goal of creating additional kind of ownership for the team, adding a little parentheses there. Given that we started out very, very oriented on sales, the DNA of the company was very sales oriented. We were scrappy. We were, you know, trying to sign up customers to stay alive. Going back to that priority in the beginning of our conversation, you make the list of the top three things. Product engineering weren't on the top three. So it was something that was pushed aside for some time. Now we're in a financial position. I'm doing a deep dive into product and engineering and helping build the, the best team that we can build in Brazil. And part of that is creating ownership for people and really helping people understand why we're building the company and what we want to be as a company. So I'm going to spend some time with, with them. And I've got a professor from a top university coming and we're, we're looking at some kind of data science stuff. Then I have another team meeting afterwards. My day should end around seven. I try to get home for dinner. That's one thing that's different in my lifestyle. I have a two-year-old now. Try to be home for dinner at least three or four days a week and give him a bath, put him to bed, have a chat with my wife, watch some basketball, NBA playoffs, get to sleep at midnight. What's your greatest weakness? I'm terribly unorganized. Scheduling, planning, you know, I'll forget stuff. My mind is in a in hundred different places sometimes, which is a bit kind of ironic given my obsession with focus. I actually said I would never have an assistant. I was too proud to have that. In January, I, I hired a woman by the name of Camila who's been you know, with me for several months now and, and she's just like made me twice as efficient. Paint a picture for the business. If it was to be a success, how do you define that? If I were to say, which we're not there yet, Viva Real would become synonymous with real estate. Where we are today, you know, we have millions of users, but I don't think that we're completely indispensable to the person that's looking for property. I want to be at the point where our business is just an absolutely mission critical part of finding the home. If somehow I was able to give you that wish and I gave you that tomorrow, what would you do with your life? I'd think of another challenge. There's plenty of things that I'd like to solve in the world and make better. The world is full of things that need to be improved and it's motivating to just tack onto an audacious challenge and just sink your teeth into it and make a difference. There, there must be a number on this business for you. There's a number on everyone's business. Someone sends you an offer tomorrow. What are you selling out for? What's the number? If I give you a billion dollars, are you taking it? You know, I remember talking with one of our investors at one point, having a conversation. The number starts with a B. And so I remember having that conversation and, you know, he had been part of building a, you know, multi-billion dollar company in Latin America, one of the only ones in the internet space. And I remember having the chat with him and he's like, this is not, you know, this is not the right focus. And and I was like, you're absolutely right. If that becomes the focus, you orient your decision-making around the wrong things. That one conversation I had and that one kind of like moment of clarity on remembering what's important, because it's easy to get lost in the numbers and the financial results. Optimizing for impact, in our case, you know, we have four things we optimize. We optimize for the home buyer, home searcher. We optimize for our team. We optimize for our, our customers. And of course, we're, we're conscious of our shareholders and really obsessing about those four kind of groups. Taking great care of our people means that we're going to have a great consumer experience, which is going to generate great results for our customers, advertisers, and the shareholders are going to do really well. So those are the things that I consider balancing. The four of those pieces are ingredients for a successful company. I think absolutely doing something that you're passionate about, bringing it back to the 
roots of the company, there was two incidences that experienced early on that really left a, a strong mark on me. When I was in college in San Diego, I was living with some roommates. We wanted to move into an apartment it was down by the beach. I remember going online, searching for, for properties. I came across a website and this website you know, had a list of properties. I looked at the results page and I saw a nice picture and I clicked on that property. This is in 2001. Pop-up came up, it said, in order to see more information, put your credit card in here, you can get the details of the property. And I remember thinking to myself, this is complete bullshit. Like, I was pissed. I was like, well, I'm not gonna pay to see this information. But then I was like, man, I really wanna be down by the beach. <laughs> this property looks really nice. I bucked up and put my credit card in. $30 later, I'm looking at a property, not in the neighborhood I want, too big for what we're looking for. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just, absurd like this there has to be a better way years later i moved to columbia i'm staying at this dingy motel my first you know couple weeks there ten dollars a night piece of crap place terrible neighborhood i was anxious to get out of there and find a place i picked up the real estate classified i described what i was looking for in the agent and said i've got something perfect for you so we had a quick meeting we sat down the real estate agent opens his briefcase pulls out a list of properties and the agent says to me i've got 10 properties i think there's definitely Definitely something that you're gonna love. It only costs 20,000 pesos, which at the time was like 10 or $15. And so here I'm sitting here like about to do the same thing again, but I'm in this dingy motel, so I'm just dying to get out of it. I reach into my wallet, pull out the money, I'm suckered again. First property I look at is, you know, already rented. The second one is not what I'm looking for. None of them meet my criteria. At that moment, I didn't really realize it, but those were the seeds that were planted for doing something that I was vehemently upset about the experience I had and I really wanted to, to make it better. Really started the idea for Viverell. You could be doing lots of things with your life, as all of us can be. Why are you doing this? I just love big challenges. I like to do things in a big way. There's a purpose behind what we're doing. I get up every day and I'm motivated. You know, the old Steve Jobs, when you get up, you know, in, in the, the Stanford commencement speech and you look in the mirror too many times and you're not excited about what you're doing, then you should do something different. And for me, that, those are words to live by. At the moment where I'm feeling like, oh, this is boring, or this is demotivating, or I should be doing something else, I'll know that moment when it comes. And then I'll change. One question that you want the audience to take away from your story. When you're thinking about building a business and you're thinking about entrepreneurship, ask yourself, what do you want to be in your life? What do you want to do? And do you want to have a control of your own destiny? And are you willing to face circumstances that are extremely difficult to be able to get to the levels of success that you desire? Brian Wickworth, thanks so much for joining us here at Star That Matters podcast, proudly brought to you by entrepreneurabroad.com. Great guy, awesome insights. It's an amazing story that you can go to a different country, build a big business, make an impact out there in the world, and really add some value to people's lives. Go to vivareal.com if you want to check out how Brian is building that marketplace online. If you want some additional inspiration, head over to entrepreneurabroad.com. That's where you can find the show notes and everything you need to go out there and share what you just listened to, along with Brian's EA feature for you to download for free. So entrepreneurabroad.com if you want to get that feature. Thanks so much for listening. Do me a favor, if you get a couple of seconds, do leave a five-star review. I'll see you for the next conversation coming up very shortly. My name's Daniel Philbin, signing off. Why are we building this company? building the company because we want to empower people to find the home of their dreams. That's something that we are really passionate about doing in Brazil.
All right, it's giveaway time. All you gotta do to win a subscription for one year to IndieFlix.com is leave a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. If you're on SoundCloud right now, follow and share. And if you're on entrepreneurabroad.com, all you need to do is subscribe to go into the draw to win. If you don't know much about IndieFlix.com, it's the place where you can go to get all of the new features, independence, documentaries, shorts from around the world, straight to you just for listening to this show. It's a great prize. Get in the draw because I want to give back to you for supporting the show here at Start Something That Matters. I'll see you very shortly. Go out there, make a big impact in the world, and do something that matters. My name's Daniel Fulham. I'll talk to you very soon. 